I wasn't going to do a Bible reading this morning, but uh, this will be a preface to this message soon to follow. We begin in verse 8. It says, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you were going there again. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was still sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. As I said last week, I did not get through my message, and I was very dissatisfied with wrapping up the last of it in just a few minutes. And so we're going to back up a little bit and look at Jesus' return. And we're really going to focus on two individuals. We're going to focus on a guy named Thomas, and we're going to focus on a gal named Martha. We're not going to deal too much with what we looked at of the delay that Jesus had last week, uh, of that its purpose was to glorify God, is what we understood from God's word, that that did not mean that the people involved in that weren't hurting There was a great amount of hurt. We talked about it, we're going to reference that again. And now we come into Christ's engagement with the disciples. And of course, they have already voiced their concern. What is their concern? Their concern is, you're going to Jerusalem and you've been chased out of Jerusalem every time with people hunting you, wanting to murder you, stone you for blasphemy. And uh, whether it has occurred to the uh, disciples that this was really somewhat of Jesus' instigation of that to show a clear delineation between those who are his disciples and those who are not, and that has been repeated throughout John, that there is this uh, abrasiveness almost where he is challenging the establishment, he's challenging people on what do you really believe? You say you are a believer, of who I am, but yet when I press the issue and I say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, you stop believing. When I say you're going to have to eat of my body and drink of my blood, you stop believing. When things get difficult, you go off to the other. You go away. You, you, you stop following after me. And so this has been a theme throughout the gospel, and we find nothing 
different here, really, but we are challenged from the positive side instead of the negative side of people leaving Jesus. We find people clinging to him. And so they're concerned, and rightly so. They're concerned that their master is jeopardizing his ministry. And remember, in their mind, his ministry was going to end by the kingdom of God on earth. That was their concept of the eschatology of what was going on right here. That this was, the Messiah was going to come, we were going to institute the kingdom of God, Israel was going to vault up back into the glory beyond that of Solomon, and was going to rule the world from the world capital of Jerusalem. That was certainly in their mind. Now granted, Jesus has on multiple occasions told them what? I'm going to be going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, three days I'm going to rise again. And he's also told them, my kingdom is not of this world. And he's given them, in the Gospel of Luke, we have a lot of those recorded as well as in, in the other synoptic Gospels. Um, he's said the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It is a spiritual kingdom, and that's what his focus has been, but that's not necessarily what the disciples' focus was. Remember that when they tried to make Jesus king after he fed the 5,000, the disciples were part of the problem. They also thought that was a good idea. Let's make him king. And he said, get in the boat. <laughs> get in the boat. Just like that. I'm sure he said it just like that. No, I don't know. Um, and so we know that the disciples had a different concept. But they are at this point now realizing Christ is determined in his ministry. He has communicated this, saying that this, the time is short. Um, we are in, when you are here to minister the light of God, you do this. You do it because it is your calling, and there is a brevity to ministry in our lives today. And we need to understand urgency, because there is a brevity, not only in your lifespan. And as I get older and older, I realize that I don't have as many years left. But then I see Mrs. Fry, and I go, i got 20 years left, right? Just keep going, girl. There's always hope as long as Mrs. Fry is here. Um, and, but even then, I know that's not very much time because I've been here at this church for 20 years. And 20 years just can go by like that. So when we look at the brevity of our lives, that's not the only thing we're talking about. We're talking about the brevity of the people's lives around you. The fact that there is not that many opportunities to engage them Perhaps the brevity is that you only have one opportunity to engage them. That one contact, that one conversation that you have. And thus there needs to be an urgency. And Jesus Christ says there's an urgency of ministry. Now, you might look at that and say, wait a minute, he just sat there for two days when he should have been over there ministering. But remember, he had a plan. The plan was this sickness has not in its view death, but the glorifying of God. And it was necessary to wait these two days so that God could be fully glorified even in the midst of all the pain and sorrow that we're going to see accompanying it here in a little bit. And so Jesus Christ has communicated that. And we see now that there is great risk. It is obvious to the disciples. Um, there is great concern. And Jesus Christ has to reiterate his purpose. And finally it starts to sink in. This is where we want to pick up here in our verses, verse 11 and following, uh, having communicated the necessity of ministry. Uh, he finally comes forward in verse 11 and says, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Uh, after this delay, 
It is now time for ministry. I cannot let my personal fears and, and even endangerments, even the risk of something happening before it's time, I cannot let that interfere with ministry. We do not recklessly minister, but we knowingly embrace the dangers of ministry. And I think that's very important that we understand. Jesus Christ wasn't here saying there was no risk. He was saying, we're going to embrace that risk for ministry's sake. It is that vital. And Thomas, of all of them, starts to click on this. He said, and the other disciples are still digging with Lazarus. He's sleeping. We should just let him rest. He's going to get well. They didn't hear the last hand of what Jesus' ministry was. Jesus' ministry wasn't just to go to him. Jesus' ministry was to go to him and wake him up. Lazarus was asleep. But we all know what sleep means, but they didn't. Lazarus sleeps. No, he doesn't. If he's sleeping, that's good. Why would you want to wake him up? Why would you want to wake up a sick person from sleeping? Jesus Christ has to, as we shared last week, share, no, he's dead. And again, the purpose of, of God come forward. The purpose of God is to glorify himself, um, not only in the life of Lazarus, not only in the community of Bethany and then Jerusalem, not only in Mary and Martha, but for his disciples' sake, it needs to happen because they still need to learn. They have not learned that the work of God through Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of the work done for mankind. They have not conceived of that yet. They are still localized. They are still individualized. They are still thinking of their own interests. And that's going to be the case right up to the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. They're still going, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? They're still fighting over that, even on the cusp of Jesus' betrayal and trial and death. That's how ingrained this is in them. And Jesus Christ says, listen, this is for your benefit, and I'm glad that Lazarus is dead. I'm glad for all of that because uh, you need to learn to believe. And again, as I shared last week, we're going from belief to belief. What do we need to believe? They already believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They already believe he's the Messiah. What is it that they further need to believe? And this is something that Jesus is going to declare to Martha later on. They have not really believed in the full mission of Jesus Christ. That his mission is to conquer death for all. Not just for all people, but for all time. And so that is his mission, to come and conquer death. And that is an aspect that they haven't yet understood. And that, that to accomplish that will require him to become sin for us, to experience death on the cross and the power of the resurrection. They haven't fully invested in that concept. And it is kind of a, a how do I want to describe this? It's, it's kind of a selective listening. We all accuse our children of that, selective listening, right? Uh, you give them a command, uh, did you say anything? Uh, and they stop what you say, let's have some ice cream. I want some! You go, well, you can hear that, but you can't hear this. Well, that's true. 
And the fact is, all of us selectively listen to God's word. We attach ourselves to the things we like, and we talked about that a couple of Sunday nights ago in our parenting study. Well, here's a promise of God in the Proverbs. Well, maybe it isn't a promise. Maybe it's a warning. Well, I don't like it that it's a warning. I like it as a promise. Because we want God's word to say what we agree with. So we have selective listening as well. God's word calls us to righteousness, to holiness, and we pick and choose out of here which ones of those we want to apply, and the rest we relegate. We, 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 we explain them away. We rationalize them. We relegate them to, well, that's cultural. Those are just cultural things that don't apply to us anymore. And yet we'll take in the very same chapter, in the very same conversation, other elements that we do like and we do practice, say, oh, those are commands for us to keep. You see, we have selective listening. The disciples were like you and me. They also just picked and chose what they heard and wanted to receive. And Jesus Christ says, I want you to go from this believing what you want to believe to believing the whole truth about me. I want you to believe that I am the resurrection and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through me. He hasn't declared that yet. He's going to. But that is the one thing they need to believe. And it is done now, and the disciples, Lazarus is dead, Jesus is going, and if they remembered, Jesus said he's going to go and wake him up. That's what Jesus said earlier, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up, in verse 11. And we don't really see their response, it's not like, it's like they forgot that he had just said that, Lazarus, that he was going to wake him up. Lazarus is dead, I'm glad for your sakes that you may believe, let us go to him. Uh, even though there's risk involved, it says nevertheless, nevertheless let us go to him, even though there's risk involved, even though Lazarus is already dead, which to us means that there's no further hope, there's no, nothing else that can be done, because we only look at circumstances through our resources and not God's resources, that's why we pray so little, frankly. Why is your prayer life so small? Because you look at the problems with your resources instead of God's resources. Instead of tapping God's resources, all you do is scramble around trying to use your resources, and we don't trust God. So from a human point, uh, what can we do for Lazarus? We're going to go up there and listen to crying women and comfort them, I guess, and take a lot of risks to go up there and do that. And that's all he's hearing. They have already forgotten what Jesus Christ intended to do when he got there. I want to wake him up. They've forgotten that part. Lazarus is dead. What can we do? And Thomas's response shared this a, a, a wonderful level of commitment. He, did he get the whole picture? No, he didn't. He doesn't have it all figured out yet. He still has to learn. And Jesus Christ says, you're going to go up there and you're going to learn something in Bethany. And that's going to be that verse to come that's so powerful. Should be underlined in your thing. We, we memorize it. We quote it. That Jesus Christ is the resurrection life. He's going to learn what that entails a little bit further, and it's not going to really dawn on him. Remember, this is Thomas, the guy who says, I want to see 
the nail prints. I want to feel where the, they, they speared him. I want to see the, where the crown lay. I want to know that the one who died is now alive. So Thomas is going to completely learn this lesson. <laughs> He's not going to understand resurrection yet. Not until later. When Jesus says, come on, come on. No, don't. And you almost see Thomas, says, oh, what was I thinking? Why would I say those things? No, come on. You need to touch, you need to see, you need to handle. So you will believe. You see, Thomas still hasn't figured out how to believe in the resurrection and the resources of God. But I want you to see where his faith has taken him. His statement is, to the rest of the disciples, not to Jesus, he says, let's all go, let's us also go, that we may die with him. Whatever Jesus is talking about, and it's gone pretty much so far, uh, Lazarus is dead, we have to go up there, he's taking, we, all their focus on the risks involved, he says, let us also go. So we will die with him. His assumption is that if Lazarus is dead, that things have turned bad, that maybe we're going to uh, have a martyrdom situation. The risk is really there. And here's Thomas saying, I'm willing to take the risks with you. Let's go up there and die with him also. You'll see the hymn is there capitalized. You might say, were they talking about dying with Jesus, dying with Lazarus? And there's been some question about that. Um, the indication is from the Greek connecting pronouns with whether it's accusative or, or genitive and things like that, that it's Jesus Christ, he's saying. You're taking all this risk to go up there to uh, minister to Mary and Martha, we guess, and it's going to probably end badly. Um, but uh, we're going to go with you and we're going to die with you. We're willing to go up and die with you. And we see a tremendous statement of faith. Was it fully informed faith? No. Was it fully grasping all that Jesus had, was intending to do? No. And the fact is, is that all of the disciples were functioning on a very immature faith at this point. And that's John's whole point of his book. And most all of his writing is that we are not going to condemn immature faith. We are going to desire it. We're, we want it to, to it has to, your faith has to start somewhere. You have to go from belief to belief. And if you don't get to this belief, you can't jump to that belief and leapfrog over this one. Your faith has to start somewhere. And now we see that Thomas's faith has gone from I'm going to follow you into the, this kingdom realm to I'm going to follow you to death. So he's already moved from a very immature faith to a little bit more mature faith, but it's still somewhat ignorant faith, isn't it? He doesn't really know what he's walking into. He doesn't see the, the working of God, what the plan of God is. It's a little bit blinded. He doesn't, haven't quite figured it out. Um, there's still a lot of things that Jesus says that confuse him. But I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him with my very life. Don't know all what that entails yet. But I'll take it as far as I do know. And I'm willing to lay my life down the line. This is in response to Jesus say, we're going to go there so you can learn to believe. 
So you can see it, what's going to happen there, and then you'll believe. And that Thomas is the guy we call what? Doubting Thomas. I don't know why we call him that when in the end he believed. Um, he was a formerly doubting Thomas. So he's the one that's going to question things and challenge things. And yet he's already demonstrated a willingness to say, I'm committed enough to you, Jesus, to what I know about you, to put my life on the line. And this is going to come out um, several times in the Passion Week. How committed are we to Jesus Christ? Everyone wants to be there on the triumphal entry. I mean, you're walking along and people are throwing branches in front of you and their coats in front of you. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And everyone wants to be on that parade. Who wants to be on the parade to Golgotha? Place of the skull. Who wants to follow him with a cross strapped across his shoulders and blood spewing out of his body? Who wants to follow that parade to the Via Dolorosa? Who's on that trip? Thomas is. Thomas says, I'll go with you to death. If we have to die there, then we'll die there. And this is a wonderful expression of faith, even though he doesn't grasp the resurrection, he doesn't grasp the entire plan of God, and he doesn't grasp the resources of who Jesus is. He doesn't fully comprehend that he is walking with God incarnate in the flesh. He doesn't, he hasn't, hasn't fully clicked, and it won't until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the disciples are convinced by Thomas's argument, and we need people like Thomas. Um, we need people of fresh faith to come in and say, why are we living for God? Let's go die for him if we need to, because we can get complacent. In, and and I, I share this because you might say, well, mature faith doesn't get complacent, um, but sometimes it does. So, you know, the same guy that was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac also told Pharaoh that his wife was his sister. Okay, sometimes we get a little fearful. We get a little too um, comfortable in forgetting that faith is calling us to action, to do things for God, to speak forth his truth, no matter the cost. And we need this kind of faith that comes in and says, we need to get busy for God. And we all kind of smile at them. Well, they don't understand. Well, no. They might not understand. They might not have all their theological I's dotted and T's crossed like you and I. But they have an enthusiastic faith to live and, if necessary, die for Jesus Christ. And we desperately need that kind of faith. We need those declarations. Let's go with him and die with him. We desperately need that energy. Sorry, energetic faith. We desperately need it. That we say we are not going to just be lulled to sleep in this 
comfortable Christian life we have carved out for ourselves. And I say this on a week that I've made you uncomfortable with our worship service. If you think it's hard for you, just imagine how hard it is for me. I haven't changed the order of service in 30-some years of ministry. So figure that one out. Oh, So that means 20 years for you and 30 for me. Oh, we need to be taken out of our comfort zone and have people tell us, hey, whatever's going on in the work of God, I want to be a part of it, and I'm willing to die for it. And we need that kind of faith. And so the disciples join him. Jesus travels to Bethany. We come to verse 17. He found that he had already been in the tomb four days. So um, the weeping and wailing, the mourning is still really going on. Uh, Jesus arrives on the scene. He hasn't arrived at the location where the mourning is going on. Word gets to Martha. And Martha hears Jesus is on his way. He hasn't arrived. Jesus is in the vicinity, but he's not there yet. Uh, some would contend he is probably uh, at some tree or some the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe, somewhere nearby Bethany. Um, and Martha hears about it and takes off. She's going to go get Mary stays put. She's still in the house, and it's Martha we get to spend some time with. Now let's remind ourselves who Martha is. And most of you remember the other story of Martha, and that is in the Gospel of Luke. Let's turn there very quickly. Uh, Luke chapter 10, I believe. This is 11. I keep getting John and Luke. Luke chapter 10. Oh, no, no, no. let's get to Luke chapter 10. Verse 38, towards the end of the chapter. It says, Now it happened, as they went, that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed her, him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, you do not care that my sister has left me to serve alone. Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And that's usually the account you think of with Mary and Martha particularly with Martha, because she is the one that's fretting and active and busy and trying to serve everybody, because it wasn't probably Jesus, but his disciples as well. And Mary just wanted to sit there and listen to Jesus. She, she was, just wanted to absorb everything he said. She didn't want to miss a syllable. She didn't want to hear half the conversation going in and out from the kitchen. She was going to sit there and station herself where she could hear the teaching of Jesus in her own home. And Martha was busy, busy, flustered, 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 and Jesus Christ describes her thusly, you are worried and troubled about many things. And that's where many of us leave Martha, and that's unfortunate because um, that's Martha on her worst day. <laughs> okay. Did you ever have a bad day? <laughs> People meet you on your worst day? You know, when your kid is grumpy and you're frazzled and everything's not going well and that's when you get to meet somebody and they're like well that person's got problems you know that's where most of us leave Martha we met her on her worst day I had one of those Wednesday 
So I had one of my worst days Wednesday. And my daughter comes home and works and says, you look like my husband when I get home. These are your children, take them. <laughs> we all have our worst days. Martha's worst day, but Martha learned something. The instruction of Jesus was very clear. You're worried and troubled over many things. This doesn't need to be your life. What Mary is doing is preferred. She is attentive to the instruction of God's word out of the mouth of Jesus. And that's another whole message there in John chapter 10. But I want to ingrain to you how Martha's faith has matured. Back here in Luke 10, she's worried, she's troubled, she's she's fretting, she's all about the, the physical care and has completely lost track of the need of spiritual ministry. And in now comes the death of Lazarus. And you might say, well, what's Martha going to be like? Her house is full of mourners. What's she going to be? She, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him on the way. The woman that was so worried about serving all the guests and taking care of all their physical needs abandoned it. And says, all these mourners are here. All of this stuff is going on. And she, she says, I'm out of here. Jesus is coming. And she makes her way to Jesus before Jesus could get to her. Isn't that marvelous? She made her way to Jesus before Jesus could get to her. She was hurting. She was in pain. She was in confusion. Yeah, why wasn't Jesus there? She's going to ask that question. Why? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. She runs to him, not with a challenging, but really just to understand. I want to know. I want to be instructed. I want to learn. I want to grow. Because her last contact with Jesus, with his rebuke, caused her to grow. How do I know? Because she's not centered on this question about the physical world. She's not asking about that. She's asking about life and death. And she's coming to Jesus saying, listen, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And then she follows it up with another statement, but I know. Isn't that great? From an earthly point of view, if you had had been here, and how many of you haven't said, Lord, if you had done it my way, come on, this is going to come up next week again, because Mary's going to ask the same, make the same kind of statement, If you had done it my way, Lord, we all come to God with that kind of accusation. Lord, if you had just done what we had asked, this this seemed to not have been a problem. This this wouldn't have happened. You know, if you'd have given me this, then I wouldn't be doing this problem. If you'd have had this in my life, then I wouldn't. If you'd have kept this temptation out, then I wouldn't have had this sin. Lord, if you, if you, if you, if you, and we throw these things onto God as though God doesn't love us as though God isn't wise and just and good. Remember, Jesus has a purpose. God be glorified, the disciples will learn to believe, and that there will be a a, a testimony prior to his death, burial, and resurrection in Lazarus. We're going to see the effects of that in a couple of weeks. 
And so Martha responds, not only if you had been here, my brother would have not have died, but even now I know in this great. Even though my brother's dead, I know something. And that is, here we go. Whatever you ask of God, God will give you. This is a mature faith that recognizes that Jesus has access to resources that are not at her disposal yet. (laughs) By the way, this terminology is being introduced here. It's a very important terminology to, to John. It's going to be fill up three chapters later on in this book. This exact terms of Martha. Let me read it to you again because they're going to become very important when we get to John 14, 15, 16. Because these words are going to be given to you as a promise. I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She's making a statement saying, I know And you might say, well, that means that she understands Jesus is equal to God. Not necessarily. Here's what she's stating, because the promise is going to go to you, and you're not equal to God. The statement is that you have such an intimate relationship with God, you have met all the conditions of a powerful prayer life, that whatever you ask, the Father, the Father will give you, because it will be in complete accordance with his will. And so whatever you ask, God will do. I have full confidence in that. This is what she is saying. This is what Martha is declaring. I have full confidence in you. That you, as a prophet of God, as the Messiah, have this intimacy with God, this accomplishment of the, of the, of the qualifications for prayer, that whatever you ask, he will do. Very important phrase in the Gospel of John. And Jesus responds to this statement of faith, a very clear statement of maturing faith. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Future tense, your brother will rise again. We're not at the house, we're not at the tomb. Jesus is on his way and she has met him And Jesus says, I'm heading there. And she doesn't know that he told the disciples that I'm going to wake him up. She doesn't know that yet. And then she makes a second declaration of powerful truth. Here we go. I know. See that word again? I know. She always says, but I know something about you. Now I know something about the future. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And that puts her squarely in one camp in Israel because there were two camps, some that believed in the resurrection called the Sadducees and some that did not believe in the resurrection. The, no, the Pharisees believed in it. The Sadducees did not believe in it. So it puts her squarely in that camp, which is a biblical understanding that this is the promise of God that there will be a resurrection in the last day. She says, I know he will rise again in the last day. Assuming that he was speaking eschatologically and that I am going to put my faith in that. And so there's an understanding of the end times. What she did not understand was her near future. <laughs> and isn't that true for you and I? Do you know what the end days are going to be like? 
Do we know what will happen at the last day? That there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The just to eternal life and reward and the unjust to eternal punishment. And we know that there will be a great white throne. We have that figured out. We know that our end. What we don't know is this afternoon. The question is, who are you trusting for this afternoon? You're trusting in Jesus for the end. Who are we trusting for this afternoon? This evening. Tomorrow morning. Who are you trusting for those days? You don't know. But the one who holds it all in his hands knows. And so she makes a confession that she has a knowledge of the resurrection. And so she has a faith in the power of God to raise us all up at the end. She has the end figured out. She has understanding of the intimacy of Jesus with the Father, that whatever he asks will give her. She has these two bookends for her faith well established. And now Jesus is going to say, the one filler in the middle that she needed, that Thomas needed, the disciples needed, that all of us need, and that is understanding who Jesus is and how he connects his relationship with God to your future. And that is that he is the resurrection and the life. Martha says, I know that you're intimate with God. You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. Whatever you say, he's going to listen to you. And I know there's a resurrection at the last day and that we will all rise again. How do I get from an it to this to that is the question of Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. That resurrection in the last day is because of me. I am the resurrection. I am the one that's going to give you life then and I'm the one that's going to give you life today. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You know that. You know that. Do you believe this? That between this history, the intimacy relationship between the Father and the Son, and the future, the resurrection, that it is Jesus that is a central point of belief. Do you believe this? That I am the resurrection. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe this? He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? A direct question. You know this and you know that. You have firmly declared this and you're right. There's an intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. You know that. There's going to be a resurrection one day. Praise the Lord. But the question is, do you believe that I am the one that facilitates it? That I am the resurrection of life? That though you are dead, you believe in me, you'll be made alive. Do you believe this? And this fundamentally is the question of a fully formed faith. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection life? That he can give you not only one day the resurrection, but the power of life today, the victorious life, the new creation that Jesus promises to all who believe. This is his offer, not just in the future, but today. That we can become a new creation, all things pass away, all things become new today. 
This is the transformation that we call new birth. That goes back to John 3. How can I be born again? How can I be crawling to my mother and be born over again? Don't you know I'm talking about a spiritual thing? You can have spiritual life today even as you're waiting for a physical resurrection to eternal life. There is eternal life that can be welled up in your soul as a spring of living water that he told the woman at the well that can be there Then you can never thirst. You'll never have to wonder. You will be dependent day by day because you'll have this new life in you that's waiting full expression in the resurrection, but it isn't just in the resurrection, it's today. I am the resurrection and the life. And though you're dead, yet you'll live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. People ask me why I don't believe in the soul sleep. I said, well, there are several passages, and this is always one of the ones I use. You will never die. What were we just communicating to the disciples? You're asleep. You'll never die. Paul says, when I'm absent from this body, I'm going to be present with the Lord. I don't think I'm going to be snoozing when I'm present with the Lord. Maybe, but we're not going to make you cross that T or dot that I today. Probably never. But um, in our intermediate state, we're not going to be in a state of death at all. It'll be life. If we believe that he is the resurrection and life, though we, um, if we, if whoever lives and believes in me, and I, I want to focus it on the first word because the second word is going to be the, the, the brunt of the end of this, and I've gone late already, is do you believe in me, but do you live in me? Do you, if he lives and believes in me, we live and believe in him. Not just believe, live and believe. Though you die, or you'll live. You'll never die, he says. Her response in verse 27 is a wondrous one. It's hopefully our response. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And all that is entailed in that uh, is, is wrapped up. And so she clearly has connected the fact that Jesus, as the intimate of God, as the Son of God, has come into the world to give life. She has connected the dots, and Martha becomes an example of faith that says, I believe, not only in the history, not only in the future, but in the today that you are the resurrection of life. You have come into the world and you are God incarnate. You are my Messiah. You are my Lord. And, I, and you'll see the word Lord there. You are my master. Yes, Lord, I believe. And it will be evident from her life, this point forward, that she is a believer. She is a follower of Jesus Christ. With her life, with her belief, she recognized Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would handle knowledge about God as we receive it with this openness to say, I will let you rebuke me and I will correct myself. She did that back then when she was serving tables. And now she's instructed, here's what you need to believe, Martha, about me, Jesus. And Martha says, I believe. I do believe. Oh, that we would have more Marthas who would be receptive to Jesus' teaching and know the truth 
and then follow him into even more truth. This is the whole purpose of John writing this gospel, is to lead us from belief to belief, from one set of truths that we know to the full truth. And even John at the end is going to say, I don't give you the full truth because it can't be written. <laughs> can't all be written. You just have to trust God. And so we invite you to do this morning.